All right, good evening, everyone. Um, we're gonna get started now. Uh, I just wanted to say welcome to everyone to our second webinar on behalf of the Aerodigestive Society. Um, our topic tonight is dysphagia in the first year of life. Uh, my name is Tara Balika. I'm one of the pediatric ENTs here in Chicago, and I'll be the moderator for our session. Um, we have an excellent group of a multidisciplinary group of presenters with us tonight, um, made up of neonatology, speech and language pathologist, uh, pulmonologist, otolaryngologist, uh, really coming from the diverse practices um, from all over, Seattle, Chicago, and Atlanta. Dr. Al joining us all the way from halfway across the world. Um, the group will be speaking about their, their role and outcomes um, through their multidisciplinary collaboration impacting dysphagia, specifically within that first year of life. Um, we will have time for questions at the end, um, but please feel free to tap them in the Q&A as we sort of progress, um, and we'll get to them as we go. Um, we're going to just jump right into it. Um, we'll start handing, by handing us off to the team from Seattle Children's. Great, thank you so much. I'm gonna share my screen. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, my name is Crystal um, Perez. I am a neonatologist um, at the University of Washington, NICU and Seattle Children's. Um, here just wanting to represent the inpatient perspective, acknowledging that as a, a small uh, portion of a chapter in, in an infant's and eventually child's life um, from our team. Just the standard disclosure is that there, there are none and a huge thank you to all the babies and families and um, teams that um, help contri contribute to this and the experiences that we'll share. Um, and I guess the disclosure, I'm a mother of two uh, children and breastfed and went through the like. So um, uh, I think some uh, understandable personal experiences here too. Um, so it's always nice to start with overall goals and just wanted to highlight some of those uh, from the NICU perspective and what are those feeding goals in the NICU uh, broadly speaking. Um, clearly, I think everyone's goal is to achieve safe, efficient oral feedings um, and acknowledging there can be uh, barriers to that, but I think going into it with that uh, overarching goal. I also wanted to highlight um, uh, for the group just the significant benefit if it's aligned with parents' goals of the importance of um, breast or chest feeding. Um, I think uh, I, this is a separate hat and passion of mine, but I want to acknowledge, yes, from a nutrition sake, it is, it is um, incredible, um, but it is actually much beyond that. And there's some evidence to suggest that the route by which human milk is shared, um, including directly from the chest, uh, has uh, additional benefits. I wanted to highlight also for this group, if um, those were not aware that there's additional immune protections that, again, are beyond nutrition, I uh, wanted to share the number needed to treat of only three for the prevention of acute otitis media. Um, happy to talk more about that, but I would uh, also challenge anyone to find another intervention as effective as that um, for um, disease, as well as bonding with the family and reuniting the clearly the baby with the family to go home. Overall, as far as potential clinical signs of feeding challenges and dysphagia, and I wanted to highlight the some of the nuance in trying to label these as clear dysphagia or challenges, because I, I think it's important to acknowledge that pathology uh, and the point of exploring this is not just to pathologize. I think every baby comes into it and clearly uh, on a progression uh, scale can have some atypical development, but everyone's goal is kind of getting, getting to that point that it's safe and efficient um, for everyone's sake. Um, some of those signs could include disengagement with feeding. Um, I think the one we often, uh, I guess as neonatologists think about most is decreasing physiologic stability um, with changes such as bradycardia or desaturations. Um, having non-reassuring respiratory findings such as uh, noises you may hear, some increased oxygen needs, 
um, there's some degree of trending uh, kind of later in the chronic phase of understanding what bicarb um, bicarbonate lab values may um, imply. That's uh, not 100% clear or straightforward, but it's sometimes of use to trend some of those values. Additionally, coughing, which is really, I will openly share a not common manifestation in the NICU. Uh, I think maybe that's part of why they're at higher risk. I uh, can't quite um, manifest that, but choking and gagging, and I have seen coughing on an infrequent basis. And then just in general, the gestalt, I think the more you care for preemies, they kind of have a understanding of what normal progression or sort of the range might look like. And so when babies aren't meeting the milestones within a range that you would otherwise expect and the clinical expectations are really important too. I wanted to highlight and then I'll pass it over to Amy, a colleague, uh, speech language pathology is incredibly talented in our NICU, but wanted to highlight in my um, uh, sort of in our tenure and using fees, I've really been incredibly impressed and in, in how superior it seems to swallow studies in the past, how we've had tended to use them culturally but how um, incredible it is to just visualize anatomy. Um, and some of, some of which, you know, is really the driving um, factor as far as uh, understanding the dysphagia and some of them can actually be, uh, an intervention can improve that. Um, the lack of radiation in, with the fees, uh, I think is also incredibly important in thinking about these tiny babies who's got, who have gotten countless x-rays and other exposures to reduce that. Um, Again, the highlight I cannot underscore enough, but if, if breast or chest feeding is of, of importance and a goal for the family and being able to assess that and build confidence in that model, um, I think, again, uh, that is, I think, maybe one of my most favorite um, uh, qualities about the fees. There's also sensory function. You can assess that understanding, and that's really impossible on the swallow study uh, in the classic sense. You can view the impact of interventions as, as well in real time over the entirety of a normal feeding session as opposed to stopping or stopping radiation. Um, and then the bedside exam, I think that's another incredible, probably my second favorite is that you don't necessarily have to remove the baby from at least that normal scenario, having a comfortable chair for a parent to sit in and practice feeding, I think is um, more and more what we really need to be uh, going for with active engagement of families and the things that we do. Uh, I know the one uh, thing that I can think of is that you can't fully visualize a swallow, uh, dur visualize during the swallow uh, with a wide out scene, but I think there's um, clear indication kind of before and after uh, that gives you um, clues. And then something I always tell my residents and med students, it's really one moment in time, just like a blood gas. So I think always remembering some clinical correlation that everyone, everyone has a bad day um, and then just acknowledging that for the babies as well. I'll pass it over to Amy. Oh, Amy, we can't hear you, but I can keep going. And then you interrupt me. Um, as far as uh, fees processes in our NICU, uh, we try to do it no, no earlier than 37 weeks with rare exception. Uh, again, I think that's just highlighting and wanting not to not pathologize um, as much as possible. Uh, the exams are conducted at bedside um, with the bedside um, nurse present. And then we usually remove the NG if possible, but it's not required. There are two scope sizes available and we try to swaddle, make everyone comfortable and use sucrose before we place the scope. I know that understandably that can make an infant not so happy. Um, and I really love that the feeding as previously is by the nurse, the parent or another therapist and really not the not the speech and language pathologist who's there interpreting the exam with, with otolaryngology. 
Um, here's just a really nice demonstration of uh, an assessment of a chest feeding. And uh, just to prove the point of how feasible this is, I think the additional layer here, if you wanted to visualize is this particular infant needed some breathing support. And, um, you know, in theory, if I write down on paper, all the things required, it seems like a lot. And yet I think it was a pretty um, uh, seemingly kind of natural and comfortable experience. Um, here are some just uh, to date, I think we've had 104. We're trying to keep track of those that we've done and some of the um, anatomical differences we've found, uh, some of them which may or may not have a whole bunch of clinical correlation, including nasal septal deviation, but some uh, which have been really um, important, including even, uh, I think, the thyroglossal cyst that was picked up. And I think that was ultimately really the driving um, force of why that particular baby was having um, difficulties. As far as finding other other things, just to note um, that are um, just things uh, we have seen uh, that I think are encompassed and probably shared amongst the crew um, are listed here. I don't want to talk through all of them, but the things I'll highlight that are unique that probably would would def would not have been picked up on a, on a BFSS included the decreased sensory responsiveness, as well as aspiration of some sort of secretions. And so I think those are important fe features. With that. Um, can you hear us, Amy? No, we can't. <laughs> but I see your beautiful smile. But case examples um, that I'll kind of work through. Uh, I was going to do a couple. Um, please let me know if I'm going over time. Uh, but is a 33-week-old with cardiofacial cutaneous syndrome um, and trying to understand clarity on homegoing regimen. I will share that this uh, particular diagnosis was incidental. So this, this baby was uh, enrolled in a study uh, uh, looking at genetics um, and didn't necessarily manifest any symptoms um, and that came back um, as one can imagine and with some additional layer of um, uh, closer look at kind of how things were progressing. There was a lot of, um, I think, um, uh, understandable concern on the medical team and wanting to make sure uh, knowing that kind of risk of dysphagia challenges were part of that. Um, there was clinically uh, some flow sensitivity really on all feeding and there was frequent spontaneous events while feeding. And so with the medical teams concerned, I think there was real risk and um, some push to just stop all oral feedings. Um, of course, the family did not want that and really felt strongly that uh, chest or breastfeeding was important to them. And then was there any safe uh, bottle feeding plan for practicing at home? As far as what happened, so the feed was performed, um, and I think importantly did look at the chest feeding um, manifestations. There was some mild delay. There's only one mild uh, render penetration with no aspiration. And what was really important was um, mom. Mom's per perception was right on, especially with that um, sort of could act regardless of what that was happening. Felt um, and pulled pulled the baby right off. So. Overall, a really reassuring um, breastfeeding session. From a bottle feeding, it did have frequent laryngeal penetration and residue um, with warm and did um, best with a chilled bottle, had some limited efficiency um, even before fatigue. So overall, knowing that the outcome uh, really built a lot on the mom's confidence as well as the medical team's confidence in these feedings that were happening on breastfeeding. So I think really 
uh, bridge the gap in promoting uh, what were ultimately their goals. And this baby did go home kind of, uh, I think within one or two weeks, uh, growing well on the plan with uh, supplemental NG, as well as ongoing bottle trials um, and outpatient therapy follow-up. So did have another fees after discharge um, that was being planned as far as ongoing monitoring. I wanted to highlight one more case. I know I um, wanna give space for others to talk about their experiences, but this was a former really tiny baby, 24 and three week baby with BPD, working on PO feeding progression, had a history of neck and PDA, but still in the NICU at 41 weeks and trying to understand the flow sensitivity. Um, a lot of variability in performance from day to day would take uh, a lot difference, uh, lot, big differences in volumes, uh, kind of stalled overall on progression. Um, and did have some fatigue-related decline. Um, there was a, a lot of differences of opinion uh, between both parents as well as different primary um, nursing and uh, other members of the medical team um, as far as, you know, should we just stop, he, you know, can't feed him or should we push through? Um, and so you can imagine that was, that was really difficult to interpret. Um, so really wanting to understand what is the safest feeding plan. From a... Um, uh, findings, um, I think to, to jump really quickly that the outcome was um, this helped everybody, uh, including mom and dad kind of get on the same page of what the best thing to do was, um, but there was some delayed pharyngeal initiation and laryngeal penetration, um, regardless of temperature actually with worse um, feeding when chilled. There was no aspiration and it was best with the, the warm bottle, um, which was interesting because that would not necessarily have been something um, that it would, would have been picked up. Um, ultimately went home within a week of this and having a, a lot more confidence in what the safe feeding plan was. And so a combination of some PO as well as supplemental NG. And um, I think it was really nice to note that both mom and dad were on the same page and uh, understandably the stressful transition from NICU to home uh, is, is hard in all cases and in particular worries about this. So I think this was really beneficial. Um, so um, getting toward the end, just potential outcomes, um, won't have to go through all of this, but I think there's three main ones. One, after a fee is reassurance with no feeding plan modifications. Clearly, there's lots of ways to adapt the feeding plan too, should there be concerns. And I think it allows you to kind of um, look at that in real time, as I've alluded to. And then, you know, what nobody really uh, plans, plans for, but I think it's important to acknowledge to families before a fee is possible. Uh, that we note that it's really not safe for oral feeds and reassurance that we really do want to promote ongoing pre-feeding activities for the hope. The hope is that eventually it may become safer. I know that's not always the case. Um, overall, I think um, just weighing risks and benefits, it's really a multidisciplinary team and, and the baby is a whole, a whole human instead of just uh, a summary of its parts. And, and so remembering that yes, lungs are important, nutrition is important, medical status and the parents in fact are super important. And so trying to think of overall how you weigh risks and benefits of the decisions um, is, is important. So what we noticed as far as outcomes and tracking these 104 babies so far is that the fees really has a lot more specificity of dysphagia management. Um, we have accomplished a significant reduction in a swallow study procedures that were being conducted, which is um, great. The length of stay actually has been shortened um, overall, as well as for babies with severe dysphagia. And I think that's mostly because we are uh, much more willing to look qu quicker um, instead of waiting for a long time. Um, and I think families feel more encouraged and confident should there be a need for home garbage feeds to go ahead and pursue that um, 
which uh, is, I think, incredible. Um, and then having um, outpatient follow-up as needed. All that said, it's important, I think, for me um, and others to think critically. I'd love to hear the audience's thoughts um, for at-home and outpatient therapy and the, the assessment of implications and value of this. Um, I know that it's fairly hard in an outpatient um, and being plugged and wanting to track this. So um, working to figure out how, how this is impacted, if any, and hopefully not negatively, but potentially for those in outpatient world helping manage these babies. Wanting to track how long it is for those needing uh, air digestive follow-up um, in that clinic. And then I think I, I still have a lot of um, questions of, uh, is there actually value in broadening this use to support oral feeding sooner? in babies with longer term respiratory needs. And I think that's manifested most in doing um, increasing resuscitation and survival of the youngest 22 to 24 weekers, um, and also not wanting to delay important milestones beyond uh, their, their pulmonary um, development. I know I talked fast, but just uh, wanted to, again, thank everyone for their time. Um, and some, some of these are uh, some of our graduates who thankfully look happy and enjoying their first birthday cake as you see on the right. So thank you all. Thank you. Can you hear me now? No. Still mute. Yes, now we can. Oh my goodness. Well, I, this is why I love working with Crystal Perez. Crystal, thank you for doing this entire lecture for us. I'm sorry to all. I think you did a fabulous job representing um, the different perspectives in the NICU. So thank you, Crystal. Sorry about that technical, you know, difficulties. I had a, a neighbor start with a weed whacker, so I quickly ran into another room to try to um, make it work elsewhere. And I apologize to all. Thank you. All right, we're going to switch over to the Chicago team. So Jim or and Laura, if you can share your slides and take it away. All right, well, thank you, Tahir. Uh, uh, my name is Jim Schroeder. I'm one of the pediatric otolaryngologists at Lori Children's here in Chicago. Uh, thank you for that amazing presentation and discussion about uh, the challenges and the benefits of fees uh, in the NICU and working up some real complicated babies. Uh, we thought we would um, take the baton and uh, move towards uh, valuation of and utility of the fees exam um, in the first couple of months of, uh, of life, particularly in the outpatient setting, um, and really try with uh, using a few cases to uh, identify why a fees may be uh, a better choice uh, than a swallowing study, right? Why choose one over the other? And there are really some advantages. Of course, bedside, if we are dealing with um, some of our infants who are still in the hospital, uh, as mentioned, reduce radiation exposure. For us, uh, we have a very large cardiac, uh, congenital cardiac um, uh, surgery program, uh, and we've been studying this particular population and have significantly reduced an already uh, high amount of pop, uh, radiation in a very vulnerable population through the utility of this exam. Uh, really, the uh, using fees to identify um, and assess the impact of particular anatomy on dysphagia and its management, and we'll go through a few cases to highlight that. Uh, uh, fees is really a beneficial exam when we're particularly looking at secretion management, particularly in non-oral infants. 
Uh, and of course, as mentioned, uh, the babies who are presenting who are primarily breastfed, but yet have the typical signs and symptoms that another child would have, uh, noisy breathing, wet laryngeal congestion that needs assessment uh, that we would previously have done uh, using bottle feeds. Uh, this slide is really just to identify because we're talking about fees doesn't mean that fees is the only exam to use. Uh, this is a collaborative um, workup often in some fairly complicated children. We have lots of tools in the toolbox to use. Uh, we're just really highlighting one today, but in no means uh, is meant to imply that this exam should take the place of any of these others. Uh, Laura, did you want to um, take this? Uh so I'm Laura Hankis Molinero. I'm one of the speech language pathologists and the director of rehab at Lurie Children's um, and have been doing fees with Jim Schroeder for a, a very long time. I think we're going on 16 years. Um, but it, when we talk about instrumental evaluation of swelling, there's really two primary options, right? There's the video fluoroscopic swallow study, and then there's the fees. When considering which one to choose, it's important to remember that neither one of these is a pass-fail exam. So often you'll hear that this patient failed their swallow study or failed their, failed their fees. And I'll be honest, I don't know what that means. So saying that, that a patient failed that exam doesn't really tell you what to do next um, or where to go from there. Um, so when picking one of those, you also need to understand what's the goal of the exam? What are the symptoms that are concerning? Why was this child? What kinds of things are your markers for improvement? is the question, what is the swallowing physiology? Well, both of these exams can tell you that. Both of these exams can look at the physiology of the child swallow. Um, if we wanna look at whether there's a possible anatomic contribution, clearly the fees is superior in that regard. The, the assessment of the laryngeal anatomy is part of the exam and is built into that. Whether aspiration is playing a part in the overall picture, you could probably get that from either one of the exams. Um, it's whether you want to, you have to weigh all of the, the benefits and the advantages and disadvantages that Dr. Prez did such a nice job of kind of outlining, outlining what the advantages of fees really are. Um, sometimes we need the information for surgical planning. Swallow studies and fees are both information gathering opportunities, right? Um, and so is that information needed for surgical planning? Sometimes in the aerodigestive program, that is absolutely what's needed. Uh, so sometimes a fees is better, right? Sometimes a fees, if you're looking at the laryngeal anatomy and the laryngeal contribution and you're doing sur surgery on the larynx, and that's certainly something you want to take a close look at and how those two, the swallowing and the airway interplay. Sometimes the swallow study is better. If you need to look at the oral phase or you need to look at the upper esophageal phase of the, of the swallow, the only way to do that is really with the, the swallow study. Um, there's been plenty of data to support that a fees and a swallow study give you very similar information. Both of them can identify aspiration and penetration with a really nice agreement and sensitivity and specificity. So here's an example um, of a patient that presented with, went to pulmonology diagnosed with asthma, right? Or diagnosed by the pediatrician with asthma. Went to pulmonology who said, well, you're kind of young for that. Let's take a look at swallowing and see if that's playing a role. Though we did the swallow study first, clearly there's pretty obvious aspiration during the swallow. This is a kid without other significant medical history. Um, and the, the physiology, not terrible, but there's pretty significant aspiration. So the question then became, why is aspiration happening? Um, it wasn't that he failed the swallow study. It was, what else do we need to know? So we decided to do a fees as a complementary exam to get it, give additional information to see if we could help put together a treatment plan to make things better, to see what, 
what we could improve from the dysphagia. Um, the FISA exam, again, we saw the aspiration, not surprising, both exams identified that, but we saw the aspiration entering the area through the interretinoid space, which then prompted a bronchoscopy and identification of a posterior, posterior laryngeal cleft that was then repaired. So this is just a good example of how using both exams was really helpful in the overall care of this patient. Um, so to move forward and some patient examples, uh, we've collected a few of the patients that we've seen over the last month or two in our fees clinic, our weekly fees clinic. We see a lot of kids who have vocal cord dysfunction. Of course, we have to differentiate between the more common iatrogenic or, of course, idiopathic, a little less common. Uh, and another subgroup that we've been really looking at is uh, the children who have uh, uh, birth trauma as a, as a subset of that idiopathic group. And here's one patient that presented recently, uh, presented with noisy breathing and with wet laryngeal congestion, so was um, brought into the fees clinic. And we were able to determine, yes, indeed, there was a vocal cord paralysis or at least paresis. Uh, this child was actually breastfeeding and we, and we can see that we are getting penetration over the AE fold, uh, but it was important us to get, and you can see there's coughing up as we're getting some aspiration, uh, but it was important for us to really help uh, uh, identify that there was uh, that the likely etiology was birth trauma uh, because the literature will support that these children tend to improve um, at a faster rate uh, and have a better prognosis, particularly related to their dysphagia because of that uh, subset. Uh, here's another group of patients with this particular patient who was seen at seven months, but I think it really highlights um, the difficulty of really doing a fees in the NICU. And as we mentioned, everybody uh, every can have a bad day. Uh, and this patient was seen at one of our community hospitals by, by an excellent otolaryngologist who did a, uh, a scope um, at the bedside in the NICU before the patient was sent home, is now seven months. They were diagnosed with a normal laryngeal exam uh, and uh, did not have a swallow assessment before they left. Uh, we saw them at seven months and they had persistent uh, abnormal cry. It was really a weak cry, a horse cry. Uh, with con persistent laryngeal congestion, but overall doing well. But we can see here that the patient did have a, a left vocal cord paralysis and on the fees exam uh, was aspirating. You can see uh, the aspirating happen happening during the swallow where they're getting um, significant um, subglottic contents that they're fairly quickly coughing up. So really just highlighting that um, if the symptoms are persisting, uh, we need to repeat that exam over time. And I, I really do think doing a fees exam um, it can be challenging. It's very beneficial in the NICU for the right patients, uh, but it really can be challenging. Um, here's another one of our patients, a three-week-old who presented for laryngomalacia, the most common reason we're seeing children in our uh, fees clinic, um, also had this wet congestion. So we were worried maybe there's a feeding variant laryngomalacia. And of course we do the fees exam and you can see there's clearly no laryngeal, uh, no laryngomalacia. Uh, we are getting a little retroflow of esophageal content. You can see that um, uh, the uh, cricofringe is opening quite widely, particularly as the bolus gets larger. Uh, and as that goes, it's that retroflow that the patient uh, begins to aspirate and then cough up. So because we had noisy breathing, wet uh, congestion and dysphagia, but no laryngomalacia and obvious cause, and there was no vocal cord paralysis, we sent them down for screening airway films, uh, which is my, my protocol. You can see here we're getting uh, narrowing uh, on the lateral film. Uh, and of course, uh, this patient had uh, an aortic arch and a setup for a repair. 
the, the um, double arch was causing compression of the esophagus, hence the retroflow, uh, and then the noisy breathing in the subglottic area. Uh, again, just to sort of bring home the point, this is one of our children who we saw for uh, the parents were or trying to increase oral feeds. The, the, we knew the child had severe dysphagia, already has a G-tube. Mom was really interested in offering more pleasure feeds. <clears throat> uh, but the patient wasn't taking much by mouth um, and uh, had previously had a video swallow, taking really trace amounts, but did not aspirate. Um, but you can see here as we begin even the fees exam, there's uh, significant uh, neurologic uh, laryngomalacia, but also the patients pooling um, their oral secretions in the hypopharynx and significantly aspirating those pooled secretions. We put a few drops of dye in, but the patient had already aspirated by the, this time here. Um, so really, this is an opportunity to confirm that there is significant aspiration of secretions. Then we talk about the actual treatment plan and options for that but also helps us, helps the parent realize why oral feeding uh, really isn't an option here. Uh, we see a lot of children who have vocal cord paralysis, but we're more and more seeing uh, kids who have paradoxical vocal fold motion uh, in infancy, also called laryngeal dyskinesia, vocal cord dysfunction of infancy, et cetera, often misdiagnosed as laryngomalacia. And these are the children that we see. Here are two examples. Uh, they'll present with laryngomalacia, uh, and then when we do our exam, they don't have that. Uh, how much this is associated with dysphagia is unclear. Uh, we have some selection bias because almost all the children coming into our clinic are coming in for noisy breathing and wet laryngeal congestion. But you can see here that children at time when they relax, particularly the vocal cords do abduct very nicely, but when they're feeding or when they're agitated, the vocal cords are um, adducting at the wrong phase of, the, of uh, the breathing, causing a loud inspiratory strider. And that's what we're seeing here. And we feel, and in these children particularly, uh, that led to um, uh, swallowing dysfunction and dysphagia, uh, particularly with the timing of the swallow. Um, that leads us into our outpatient breastfeeding population. We've spent a lot of time working on. Laura, I think you're going to take over this slide. Um, I certainly can, although I think a lot of this is repetitive. I think Dr. Prez and um, Amy and her miming <laughs> did a nice job of uh, putting together and talking us through kind of the breastfeeding fees. The, the, clearly, the opportunity to assess breastfeeding directly is hugely important um, and so beneficial. Uh, one of the greatest advantages, in my opinion, to, to a fees is the opportunity to directly um, assess breastfeeding. Um, and we've found too in the outpatient population, right? This is really well tolerated. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we've studied about 300 patients now and only had, you know, about two to three. So, you know, 1% or, or less who really haven't tolerated the exam. We can almost always get um, useful information. There are a few children who will refuse to take to the breast, um, but we're still able to, um, you know, maybe with through dyeing some secretions and, and providing. Um, uh, and placing the scope, we're able to um, get really useful information um, on these patients. And you know, we've demonstrated that the physiology of the swallow on a bottle-fed infant is, is is different than the physiology of the breastfed infant. So really, just taking a breastfed infant who has maybe wet laryngeal congestion and giving them a bottle with some barium in it may not really give you the full picture or the best picture, or the accurate picture of what's going on. And if they do aspirate in that setting, they may not be doing the same from the breast. And therefore we may be um, taking some a baby from the breast who doesn't necessarily have to um, have that happen. 
this is just an example of one of our um, um, babies who is breastfeeding. Again, it's more of an opportunity to um, engage the parents and do some goal setting and provide information uh, on visual confirmation of what, what we're seeing on the swallow. Um, this baby you know, has had a progression of the dysphagia over time, particularly on their anti-epileptic medications. And you can really see there's a poor pharyngeal swallow. Um, and um, we, you know, we do have to slow down the swallow a bit, mostly with um, oral compensatory strategies and maybe a little thickener, but we can't get too thick because the residue then gets aspirated uh, and particularly with the delayed swallow. Um, so really this is a great opportunity to fine tune what is possible and really kind of work with the family um, to uh, identify their goals and how we can best achieve them. Um, so really just in summary, I think the instrumental evaluation, particularly in children uh, with noisy breathing um, and strider in the first couple of months is, is quite helpful for various different reasons. So thank you, we appreciate it and we're, we're happy to be part of this discussion. Laura, anything else from you? Oh, thanks very much. All right, thank you both. Um, we'll pass it off to the last team out from Atlanta. All right, thanks everybody. Um, I'm uh, like uh, Dr. Valika said, I'm, uh, I'm Nikhila Rawl and I'm calling in from India right now. So uh, please apologize. Any, I apologize for any uh, sounds in the background as my kids are getting ready for school. Um, so Aaron Crane and I uh, are going to be presenting today about our um, outpatient setup in our dysphagia management clinic, uh, or what we um, fondly like to call air digestive light. Um, so let me forward here. Uh, quickly with regards to disclosures, I'm sorry, we did not include these in our slides, but uh, I am actually in India on a Fulbright studying infant feeding. So uh, that's, that's not my disclosure. Okay, so I'll just start by talking about who is involved in our dysphagia management clinic. Um, let me back up a little bit and just talk about the impetus for why we developed this. And I think a lot of institutions do have fees clinics. Um, and we were really looking for a way to create a fees clinic. And, and at, at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, we have a large uh, feeding program that is actually be, uh, based uh, out of the behavioral side, meaning children who have avoidant restrictive uh, food intake disorder, ARFID. That is where the feeding program in at Children's really started. And we were recognizing that one, we had some of those kids who actually probably had medical issues that were not addressed early on that led to aversive feeding. And two, we didn't have uh, enough bandwidth on the air digestive side to really catch all these young, young kids who were coming in with dysphagia, whether that was post-viral in the um, hospital, they were um, found to have feeding issues or they were admitted for failure to thrive and found to be aspirating. Um, and so we developed this, like I said, air digestive light uh, that we housed actually in our feeding program and allowed us to create uh, a program that encompassed the entire um, age spectrum 
as well as from the medical all the way to the behavioral side. Uh, so we can see what's happening through the course of life. And the reason I want to give that background is that we consider ourselves a pro-feeding clinic. You know, and in many ways, I think Aero, when we have the pulmonology uh, involvement directly, there may be a little, you know, they're, they're uh, maybe super conservative and, um, you know, we tend to be, you know, with safety definitely in mind, we tend to try to push feeding a little bit more. So our clinic has ENT, GI, uh, dietitian, and uh, speech uh, involved in the clinic. Erin, if you want to talk about our patient population here. Okay, so kind of piggybacking on that. So we don't have pulmonology involved. And so when we, the kids who are most appropriate to come see us are kids that don't have significant respir respiratory compromise or respiratory history prior to showing up on our doorstep. Um, so oftentimes these are kiddos who um, they have, some of them have been identified in the NICU um, with concerns for dysphagia, but oftentimes there's kids who have gone home fully orally feeding um, with the development of concerns for aspiration over the next couple of months. Maybe they, um, at their birth hospital, it just, they weren't feeding enough for concerns to present and then they just kind of slid by long enough. Um, and then at some point someone says, okay, you're coughing and choking a lot, let's get a swallow study. Uh, most of the time, the first swallow study that's done um, around here is gonna be um, a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Um, and that's the point at which hopefully someone says, okay, there's something going on here. Let's see if we can figure out what the next step is. Um, and so these kids have usually had some type of swallow study that identified some pharyngeal dysphagia, or there are rare circumstances where they did a swallow study and there's no evidence of pharyngeal dysphagia, but this cat, this kid sounds terrible. Um, and so there's still that desire to um, figure out what's going on. Um, most often these kids have had a recommendation for a modified diet. Um, they have been, there have been recommendations for compensatory strategies. We all know that these come with barriers. Um, so thickening is not a great solution a lot of the time. It's not easy. It's not cheap. It's not consistent. Um, and so having that as your solution isn't always the best solution. Um, and then we often have these kids who come in and they, you know, Oftentimes we'll have a kid who was fully orally feeding for three months, went in for a swallow study, had aspiration, thin nectar, maybe honey was tried, maybe it wasn't tried. Um, and they're sent off with five ML trials once a day, three times a day, um, but really limited opportunity to continue to develop these skills. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning, the kids who come to see us um, really present with a stable respiratory status or unremarkable respiratory history. If they have a significant respiratory history, and um, we have a really good relationship with the Air Digester program at Children's, um, and we are able to send those kids over there instead of them coming to see us. Sorry, it was muted. I think I saw in the chat someone asked about GI, so we can talk a little bit about that in um, our program. Uh, um, so we do a group intake uh, where before we start, we critically assess the previous uh, instrumental assessments and see if we can actually identify uh, potential uh, etiology of dysphagia, whether that's anatomic, whether it's functional, um, whether it's neurologic, things like that just based on the pattern. Um, and then as I think Dr. Schroeder did a good job of, of saying that 
you know, the, the fees is just one part of the exam. If you come to this clinic, in all likelihood, you're going to get a fees at some point. That is, that is like I said, the, the impetus was for a fees clinic, but we couple that with the uh, findings of the video fluoroscopic swallow study, as well as the clinical assessment of feeding. Uh, one thing that we're really uh, attuned to is that neither the fees nor the video fluoroscopic swallow studies are uh, representative of what's happening during normal swallows. Sometimes we see kids who don't want to take the barium in the video fluoroscopic swallow studies. And of course, the fees is you have a camera in your nose. So, you know, how, um, how much are you bothered by that? We, you know, take all of these pieces uh, as a part of the puzzle and not necessarily the single factor that makes the decision of what to do next. So we, we look at all the different factors that could be avoiding, could be causing um, dysphagia. And I think it's important to recognize that dysphagia doesn't only mean that dysphagia is just a dysfunctional swallow. So it goes beyond, hey, is it like someone had talked about, is it pass fail? That's a terrible way to look at it because, uh, you know, you can have a dysfunctional swallow without everything going straight into your lungs. And so we look at all these other factors including do they have an interest in feeding? Are they uh, showing signs of aversion because it feels terrible, it's going down the wrong way? Uh, how are their oral skills? Um, if it's a kiddo who it seems otherwise healthy, is there any um, oral and uh, anatomic issues? Um, you know, I, I know it's a very controversial topic, but we've identified some kids who have tongue tied that's actually impairing uh, the ability to push the bolus back in a, a cohesive and timely manner. It might just spill back. So is there something like that that's obvious that we can address? How about GI tolerance or pathology? We've had kids with issues who, um, who are showing signs of aversion who have gone for scopes and ended up having EOE and very young kids is under a year of age. Um, we think about the cost of care for these kids. We have a lot of families who are uh, unable to afford the things that Aaron was talking about, whether it's modified diet or feeding therapy, even sometimes getting to that, how much they pay out of pocket. So we really take all these factors into account. Do the kids tolerate thickeners, right? Whether it's the taste of it, uh, whether it's um, that residue and things like that, that'll impact how effective the thickener is. Um, have the symptoms changed over time? Uh, we've seen kids with laryngomalacia who started as uh, having really significant issues from a suck swallow breathe perspective initially. Uh, and as the noisy breathing and those type of typical sim uh, symptoms of laryngomalacia resolve, when we, we do a fees, maybe they're not noisy anymore, but you see that the Maybe the epiglottis is curling and that's allowing for liquid to sneak into the airway or maybe the arytenoids are flopping in and that's dragging in liquid into the airway. So, you know, really looking at a whole, the whole holistic perspective. And then of course, other medical conditions, which could be uh, affecting swallowing, whether that's prematurity or neurologic issues or, uh, or any other um, comorbidities that we should consider. Um, one of the things that I love about this program is how patient-centered it is. So we're not just evaluating for dysphagia. Our goal is certainly to resolve, ideally, <laughs> the concerns for dysphagia, get these kids to eating, um, hopefully without any more modifications than is absolutely necessary. Um, our we really prioritize maintaining oral skills and interest in PO. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we're part of a larger program that works with these, the 
consequences of taking food away at an early age. We have a lot of behavioral feeders um, who they didn't get great experiences early on and they didn't develop a positive relationship with feeding for a multitude of reasons. Um, and the consequences of that are really long lasting um, and impact not just the kiddo, but their family in many ways. Um, so we're able to talk families often through different options. So, you know, if a kiddo aspirates, there's not just one solution. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that the family has to take the recommendation that we feel results in the safest swallow. That doesn't mean that it's the best fit for that family necessarily. Um, and so we try really hard to offer the options to the family um, and help guide them in the decision-making process. Um, we try to maintain as much normalcy around feeding as possible um, while trying to figure out what the true cause of dysphagia is. And then again, always looking at, we wanna be sure that our current feeding problems don't result in ongoing and long-term feeding consequences that we're gonna be paying for for years to come, decades to come sometimes. I mean, it really is, it can go on forever. So we do want to touch uh, how to how we differentiate these kids from our typical arrow patients. Um, usually, we like I said before, we find them before there's really pulmonary consequences. There are some signs and symptoms that people have already gone over, whether it's uh, some wetness with um, feeding or coughing, choking, or things that suggest that feeding is just not right. But you know, the pediatrician listen, listens and says, "Hey, everything sounds good." Any uh, um, imaging that's been done looks good. They just haven't had time to develop those things. So we're inter trying to intervene early uh, before they get to that point. Now, if we have persistent issues or upon presentation, there are concerns from a pulmonary perspective, then absolutely these kids are uh, headed to our more of our aerodigestive route, which often they do, they do get a lot of the same workup, but it's just from a little bit of a different lens where we're a little more protective um, because they're already starting at a deficit. So we just wanted to give a couple of examples of kids who have come through our clinic uh, because I think what, what really is highlighted in these is that that team-based approach and that, that, um, that, that, um, shared decision-making with the family is so important in managing these kids to figure out what works for the families and how we can, uh, you know, slowly but surely make progress towards normal feeding. So Erin, if you want to talk about this kiddo. All right. So this is one that I think Nikila and I take some particular pride in. <laughs> um, so this kiddo she was a term baby, had some reflux, feeding difficulty, coughing with a bottle, had frenulectomy. Um, she had a brewery at seven weeks of age, um, had some concerning symptoms for reflux, which earned her a swallow study. We all know that we can sometimes find things on swallow studies that then we can't unfind, right? Um, so what was identified on the swallow study is that we had aspiration of thin and or slightly thick and mildly thick at that time. Um, she went home doing really small volume POs. They brought her back for another swallow study, and we saw the same thing. We saw continued aspiration. Um, when they came to our clinic, the parents were really defeated. Um, they were frustrated. Their baby really wanted to eat, and it broke their heart to say, nope, you can only have 15 mLs. Um, 
and they were frustrated that they didn't have a better solution at that time. Um, and one thing that they mentioned is that they didn't feel like the swallow study was an accurate reflection of her skills. They said, you know, that it, that's not how we feed her. And we've all had kids like this, right? Like it, the situation in fluoroscopy doesn't match what's, what's done in the home environment. Um, it's one of the limitations of fluoroscopy. So when she came to us, she was only taking 15 mLs of thin liquids one time a day, which she eagerly accepted. She would cough only when she was so overly eager that she was accepting larger volumes. Um, so we were able to do a fees on her and I think it ended up being like 10 minutes long. She was upset in the beginning. Um, we did see some reflux um, that then we saw laryngeal penetration concerning for aspiration only when she was agitated. As soon as she calmed down, everything looked really good. Swallow trigger was really timely. There were no concerns for laryngeal penetration or aspiration when she wasn't upset. Um, with this information, we were able to, to talk with the family about, so they were feeding and were there with us. Um, we were able to talk with them about the circumstances that resulted in dysphagia and the circumstances under which she swallowed safely. Um, we, at the, with this particular kiddo, we had a primary GI that we wanted to loop in as well. Um, and he was concerned about the evidence of um, aspiration on the OPMS, um, but he was willing to give our strategy a try. Um, and so we slowly progressed this kiddo. We started with 30 abels once um, uh, prior to each bolus, um, increasing with outpatient feeding therapy with increasing by 30 mLs per bolus. Um, and she came back to us in eight weeks and she was fully orally feeding and ready to pull the tube. Um, it was incredibly encouraging that we were able to see such larger volumes on fees than they were able to see on the OPMS. So the decisions to make her NPO on the OPMS were made with five mLs and 10 mLs. Um, and we were able to see a full ounce um, during the fees, which kind of gave us the confidence to be able to say, so we know that she can do 30. Let's see how she does with a little bit more. Um, so it was, it was a big win. And I think what this highlights is the benefit of having a place for these kids to go when they leave the inpatient setting, uh, who, you know, whether it's a fees clinic or um, arrow, whatnot, the where, uh, you know, we know that all of the instrumental studies that we do are just a snapshot in time and things can look different and kids practicing you get better at swallowing by practicing swallow, just like any other activity. So, so just using that um, uh, counseling and, and shared decision-making and more information really helped us uh, progress this kid to where they want to be. Um, only because we're short on time, I'm, we'll end with that one. The second one was uh, similar, but basically demonstrated how with some um, modification and some, we did end up doing surgical intervention on that kiddo, we were able to pull the tube um, but basically showing that, um, that w it's not necessarily always about getting it perfect, but it's about, um, working with the family to meet the goals, uh, at the pace of the child. Um, and so we'll stop there, uh, and let Dr. Valika take over. And, and if there's any questions, we can, we can take them now. Doesn't look like there's any other questions other than GI question that you all have answered. I figured if we have a few minutes for us, I think it'd be nice to just have a description of some of the work that you guys have done. And I'm just gonna run a quick case and see if 
you do it that way. All right, so I'm gonna present a pretty classic case that we've sort of just gone through, right? A X23 weaker um, twin gestation followed with the expected outcomes for a child who's born at nearly 24 weeks. Chronic lung disease, pulmonary hemorrhage history, rhinopathy, anemia, prematurity. Had neck, was intubated for about three months and then extubated to four uh, ram cannula, who's now on four liters high flow. Um, um, so the question really comes, so this child upon discharge or nearing discharge from the NICU was feeding by mouth. There were no baseline concerns noted um, from a bedside clinical evaluation. It was taking about three ounces in 15 minutes. The question I have for just the panelists, you know, just speak up, is would you get an SLP consult in this world with the child asymptomatic um, in this capacity? Well, assuming I have a microphone, do I have a microphone? You do. Yay, unbelievable. <laughs> um, I guess I'm curious, uh, this little baby has not seen any SLP consult throughout his NICU stay. He's been that little and that young and, and never had any help. He's got excellent nurses, apparently, that helped him on that journey. Um, that's unfortunate. I do think that it would have benefited him to have uh, a neonatal therapist, I help him, but um, you're, is there a concern now? There's no baseline concerns. You're just literally at the point of discharge. Do we want an SLP consult? Is that the question? While they had their NICU stay, would, I mean, and I think that's the thing. I think we sort of advocated for then more likely than not, and you know, early SLP eval or SLP eval as part of our NICU care would be beneficial. Um, this child didn't, and I think that was one of the points I was trying to highlight that, you know, just for all of us listening, that um, having intervention from an SLP, I think, makes sense, at least is the, what I'm getting from your impression as well as from everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I think, Tyra, what's interesting here is the, the, the phrase, no signs and symptoms of aspiration, and I think you really have to think about according to who or whom, <laughs> right? So, you know, if the parents are saying that the parents don't know what to look at or, or what may be a sign or symptom of aspiration, if the discharge papers say that, you know, well, what does that mean? And I think that really um, speaks to the expertise and the skill of a, a, a speech language pathologist, particularly someone who is uh, skilled in evaluating babies in the NICU to determine are there signs and symptoms? Because I think if you look back, um, objectively, there probably was something. I, I find it hard to believe that this patient was completely normal and fine and has not one symptom that there's a problem, um, particularly as you're going to get to the next few slides. Yeah. Um, so currently, they're at five months old, and they've been seen in the outpatient clinic. Um, they've been transitioned from their RAM count, of course, to just four liters high flow. Um, and as they sort of came back, they sounded a little bit more noisier. So they had an incidental chest x-ray, which completely shows some coarse interstitial markings and granular opacity. Um, and because the kid was eating well and, and was enjoying bottle feeding and taking large volumes, um, in this outpatient setting, they finally got a speech and language pathology referral um, because of a pulmonary concerns for a chest x-ray for concerning for aspiration. Um, when they had their evaluation, um, I guess what they saw, the child's on four liter high flow, setting appropriately, um, took, you know, nearly two to three ounces in 15 to 20 minutes with no overt signs or symptoms of prandial aspiration, no concerning airway sounds. Um, 
because of their history of prematurity and their prolonged intubation history and their resp worsening respiratory status, they got an instrumental. The question after the group is, you know, we frequently encounter these kids who aren't always on room air and thoughts on feeding on four liters high flow nasal cannula or any high flow. Um, I'm just so curious if that child would need to be on four liters of high flow nasal cannula if we'd had a speech pathologist helping him with his feeding in the first place. But that's maybe an aside. Um, Y'all can laugh at me, but come on. Um, but there certainly is a question, and I guess I'll bring Crystal's opinion to the forefront here, if we could, Crystal, um, on we have certainly experienced that the babies do show differences on a fees, whether you have um, low flow or high flow oxygen at the time of the fees. And so it, it certainly, there's, a lot of research on it, and yet there needs to be more. What do the rest of y'all think? I was I was just going to add. I think, and um, just to tailor it, I well, I I would argue there's not a lot of research on it. Um, I think there's some things that have been picked somewhat arbitrarily, and what I often harp onto the team and to Amy included is if you can have a child be from a pulmonary standpoint stable, um, I think the feeding will go better, uh, regardless of. Um, uh, some support. Uh, and so I think if you start sprinting them uh, off of things, uh, then there's a kip next to their, their swallow and feeding is going to go differently. So however that Absolutely. support manifests. I will say that like, so in general, I have a knee-jerk reaction against feeding little ones on this high flow, but there have been like the few and far between kids that I've gone up to see for an eval who they've been on four liters. I've been like, oh, they're going to look terrible. And I walk up there and they like look okay. Now, could that, does that mean that maybe they don't need the four liters? I think that's an argument, but like there are some kids, I think it's just like everything else in our lives, right? Like it's very patient specific. And like there's, there are occasions where it could be considered, but in general, I totally agree that this, I don't expect this kid to feed well. Well, breathing has to be at an appropriate level of respiratory effort in order for us to be able to sustain it long enough and stop it long enough to swallow safely. So um, if he needed four liters, then he needed that. But it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that we might need some help in the feeding world if he's on four liters. I'll just throw out there, there are NICUs who feeding and practice occurs on CPAP. And it happens that I don't think the outcomes are so dramatically different in those than others. And so I think it's just a humbling, humbling experience to acknowledge. Um, I think the biggest thing I wanted from this next one as, as we sort of progression to eventually getting a swallow, um, if we're thickening consistencies, you know, thickening agents for kids at this age, especially with this history of neck, um, how do you navigate that if you were to have aspiration? You know, what have you used in your practice that can work well? And, you know, using Enfimo AR as a slightly thickened formula, thoughts on that for people practicing this in the community? I do have colleagues of mine that have um, spoken quite highly about Enfimel AR fortified to 24 um, as being uh, an appropriate slightly thick consistency. Um, we have not used that at our NICU, so I can't speak from personal. I don't know if any of the um, recipients to this lecture want to add in their thoughts. I think thickening is 
hard in any <laughs> in any realm. I think gel mix is a reasonable consideration too. Um, it thickening is inconsistent on its best day, um, and it's. There are times when it's totally appropriate and it's great and there's some good thickeners out there, but it's really hard for parents in a lot of circumstances. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd add is I think that I saw that this patient was at least partially breastfed and I'd be really reluctant to transition completely away from that um, and introduce a formula that A, isn't for, isn't for premature infants um, and B, isn't breast milk. Okay. We'll go over the swallow real quickly. Um, and because we're getting to time and I want to be mindful of everyone's time. Um, so you can hear the swallow, you can see the swallow, you know, we see some incomplete airway closure during the swallow, some frequent laryngeal penetrations with the swallow, but no overt signs of aspiration, but other than some trace silent aspiration. Um, child obviously normal UBS function, but no appreciable change in swallow physiology, whether on four liters or two liters. Um, and as our last slide, this is the sort of take home points that we had, you know, if you saw this wet x-ray, first step, discontinue oral feeding, all, some, none, you know, thoughts on that and restricting PO intake for these kids. Well, I think we've made our thoughts. We, we, you know, our, sorry, I, was vague. I think, you know, our thoughts, we, we would certainly not continue full oral feeds, but certainly practice, I think is uh, important. We, we, we really have gotten away big time from in our system of taking away everything. I'll just let everyone else chime in here. And certainly on that study, on the snippet of the study that you showed us, there's a, quite a rapid rate of feeding presentation and no pacing. So there's a lot of things we would do to modify the way that baby's being presented the feed that I think may improve the quality of the swallow on the little snippet that you showed. So I'm sure that you're- um, No, and that's really valid, right? Because I know our research technically shows you know, greater than three sucks for swallow can really increases your aspiration risk and timing and pacing can go a long way. Um, but we'll see where that goes. Um, I think flow moderation, we don't do enough with it. Um, you know, changing nipples make us crazy, but changing the nipple, changing the position of the child, changing the way we are presenting the liquid can make a big difference. And certainly I would want a fees for sure on this child watching him breast him or her breastfeed. Um, and then I think there's a lot of strategies that may help minimize the respiratory risk. And you've got to clean up the respiratory situation on a baby that's a VPD kid. Yeah. And I'll close it out with asking, you know, for a child who doesn't have over, you know, silent aspiration. Um, and otherwise looks well when feeding, when do you sort of reconsider reassessment in these situations, ideal timeframes? I think I go back to what are we trying to improve? How, what's our measure of success? Um, is it the chest x-ray? Is it the, the four liters? Like repeating the instrumentals only as good as defining what our outcome is. And, and I think a lot can change in even weeks, but then if this is inpatient in the NICU, if you're on four liters from an alveolar development and stability. Um, and so I think acknowledging, and I would be really cautious, I guess, in, in pathologizing saying that silent aspiration is a, without making some of those adjustments needed, I think you can successfully breastfeed fully as well, um, depending on the scenario. So I, I would agree with everything everyone's saying and be really cautious that, it, that can be damaging very long-term 
um, tangibly and intangibly for baby and family. Okay, thank you. All right, I'll close it out with that. Um, if I can switch slides. All right, I just one, I want to say thank you to everyone who participated as our panelists. That was a wonderful uh, discussion that we all had. Um, thank you for all the uh, participants who joined us for this evening. Um, to close it out, just as a reminder, the 11th annual meeting of their society is coming up um, this December, uh, November, um, 2nd through the 4th at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. So please join us there. Um, if there's any other questions or any whatsoever, please reach out to us afterwards and we'd be happy to email back with any other things that we can help with. But thank you all. Thank you.